Hi, I'm Kat Holbrook, cook, lover of all things British and host of The Doorstep Kitchen. Welcome and thanks for tuning into this show which celebrates the best of British food and drink. Each week I'll be chatting to someone that inspires me by cooking or producing delicious things on our doorsteps. We'll also hear from our expert forager Imogen Davis on what delights you can find right now and I'll be sharing some of my favourite recipes which I hope will inspire you. Coming up in this episode, I'll give you a recipe for gooseberry tart with elderflower cream and Forager Imogen speaks about hogweed and no, it's nothing to do with pork. But first, let's dive into my chat with craft vinegar maker Sam. My guest today is the founder of a sustainable brewery, producing handcrafted vinegar in Orkney. His raw, unfiltered, living vinegar has been deemed the best you can buy from chefs such as James Martin. He's won countless great taste awards. It's Sam Britton, founder of Orkney Craft Vinegar. Hi, Sam. Hi, Kat. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm great, thanks. How are you? Good, thank you. Where are you at the moment? Uh, I'm just in my house at the moment, just in the office upstairs. Mm -hmm. So um, I just wanted to kind of take it back to basics, first of all, and for you to explain kind of just what is vinegar? Okay, so vinegar started off as alcohol, so it could be a wine or a beer, essentially. And basically, it's gone through two fermentations, the first one from a a sugary base, um, whether it be malt, honey or fruit. And then it's fermented on Mm -hmm. uh, in a controlled way using acetobacter, uh, which basically converts the alcohol to acid. And um, it does it in quantities of about two thirds. So if you're looking at 8% uh, alcohol level, then you'll get roughly 5 or 6% acidity. Okay. That's the conversion. So that's a bacteria then? Yes, yeah. And um, you're here with a lot of um, apple cider vinegar companies with the mother that's got the active bacteria in it, still live. And it's not been pasteurized because as soon as you pasteurize and bring it up to a certain temperature, it kills kills the mother, kills mm. the living uh, biomes. Okay. So your vinegar is living. So that means it's got, got the mother in it and the bacteria? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it, it has the same health benefits as apple cider vinegar as well. There's there's no difference between um, a sugar base that is a fruit that's apple mm-hmm. to what we make. Okay. So what do you make yours from? What bases are you using up in Orkney? Um, so the first flavour was malt um, because I, I used to work at a, a water mill grinding a, a particular rare breed grain called bear mm. and um, experimented uh, malting with it. Then started experimenting making making beer and then that led to vinegar. So that's the first sugar base. And then the second one was, um, was honey. Oh, okay. So we're making a, a mead essentially and um, infusing with uh, meadow sweet because a lot of the bees pollinate the the meadow sweet flowers in the summer, and um, the honey actually tastes of of meadow sweet as well. Mm. And then we sort of got into the the fruit wines and uh, things like rhubarb, uh, rosehip, and uh, seaweed as well, sugar kelp. Oh wow! Um, but to get the uh, bricks levels up, um, the sugar level, you need to add a bit more sugar basically to something like seaweed because there's hardly any natural sugars in that so we have to boost that by um, adding sugar into it to get the right abvs but we try and use as little as possible and um, use the natural sugar from the the fruit or or the ingredient that we're using so yeah you've got some really interesting flavors you've got a couple of malts you've got your as you've mentioned your honey and meadow sweet rhubarb seaweed what are all these different kind of vinegars good for because there's a huge variety 
Yeah, um, it's just purely on flavour, really, because there's not uh, one universal vinegar that works on everything. Mm. But our most diverse is probably the sugar kelp. Um, and I thought it would be a kind of controversial flavour. But during the fermentation, double fermentation, something kind of magical happens to the um, raw flavour of the seaweed. And um, there's a, a background note of umami mm. um, and the acidity with that as well. But it works in, in so many things. Um, the, the malts less so. They're there for more kind of uh, robust dishes because they're such a pronounced, robust flavour itself. So you're just matching that with um, appropriate ingredients. Uh, and there's kind of really complex uh, dark malt sort of uh, whiskey notes to it as well so that's not going to work with everything mm. um and then the uh rose hip for example that's that's seasoned in sherry casks um oloroso sherry casks so you can use that like a, a sherry vinegar okay. and same with the uh, highland park malt in in the same casks yeah okay so you've got two malt vinegars one's your highland park malt mm-hmm. that is something to do with whiskey isn't it are they a distillery on orkney yeah it's it's one of the biggest distilleries in Orkney, part of the Edrington group. And um, it's, it's really, really great whiskey. And um, we, we get all the components from the distillery. So it starts with the, the malt. In their whiskey, they put 20% uh, peated peat smoke malt that they, um, they, they do on the kilns in, in the distillery. And um, that gives a, a really kind of smoky flavour. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you've had heavily peated um, whiskies, but um, mm-hmm. Highland Park is slightly more mellow than some of the the really peaty ones because it's only twenty percent. Um, so we take we take that uh, the yeast, um, the distiller's yeast, and uh, the barrels too. So it's every every component that they use just to make it completely authentic. Oh wow! So you're making vinegar exactly how they're making whiskey, effectively. Yeah. Um, so it's called the washback uh, when you you making an unhopped beer basically and um, we start the process and get the sugary liquid unhopped then pitch their actual distiller's yeast to, to their sort of recipe mm. um, and then ferment it in one of their casks so it's not on a stainless steel vise getting the character from from the first ferment right yeah. the way through until it's finished vinegar as well because we we mature in the barrels so you do mature all of your vinegars in barrels then um, most of them, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The sugar kelp, no, uh, but the rest of them, yes. So this this Highland malt vinegar is that got quite a smoky flavour from the peat? Yeah. Um, well, it's um, kind of secondhand peat via smoke, basically. So it's like smoking the uh, the grains, from the grains. Um, to dry them because first they're sprouted to to get the maltose sugars, and then they're kind of dried basically on a floor that's got the fire yeah. underneath it um, and it's sort of just gently gently smoking mm. and that, that, that's a technique that I used at the mill as well so I know how to do it from the actual base ingredient okay because you were a chef as well so you worked at this mill mm-hmm. was it before that you were a chef uh, yeah I was a chef previously for 17 years um, and worked at quite a few different Michelin star restaurants and got a lot of uh, contacts in the trade as well which is is helpful to get um, to get us noticed and to get samples out there and get them tasting it. Um, yeah, definitely. Because yeah, it's just just all about flavour with those guys and um, good story, good sort of ethical story too. Um, so it started with a lot of my mates, basically. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, they loved it and were really encouraging. And I think I think that's what what got us noticed. So it, it definitely helped. Um, uh, Seventeen years of drudgery in hot, sweaty kitchens <laughs> paid off. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't think it would, but it came good in the end. <laughs> Was it mainly Scottish restaurants you were working at, or kind of? Um... No, um, no, I, I started off in London, um, okay. and uh, and then migrated to uh, Australia. Oh wow! Worked out there for a bit, and um, back to back to Nottingham, my hometown, because I'm not Scottish or Orcadian. <laughs> <laughs> As you can probably tell by my voice. Yeah, yeah, I haven't got a thick Scottish accent. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and then how come you ended up in Orkney? Um, I moved up here with um, with my ex-wife now and um, her her parents, my parents-in-law. They lived up here previously for 10 years and moved up when she went to university. Mm. Um, and we'd been on holiday a few times and it just grabs you like that if you've got um, some sort of family connection or something like that, then... Uh, yeah, I just uh, like the, the idea of living somewhere um, completely different and, and rural. Yeah. But yeah, I, I love it up here. It's, it's great. Mm. And um, your vinegar has been yeah been praised by obviously your chef contacts and you know contacts of theirs. And I saw on James Martin's Great British Adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what vinegar was he using there, and did that make such a, did that make a big impact to your business? Yeah, I mean, I didn't know what what he made of it because um, I didn't actually meet James. Uh, it was Nick Nairn that came to yeah. uh, our setup in the in my father in law's garage, and he came and uh, tasted it and did the did the filming. And mm-hmm. I, I did a, I did a wrong pairing with the the bear malt. That was the the one that they were uh, really interested in, the one that James really enthused about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I paired it with crab because back from my chefing and Jeffrey. Um, crab and malt vinegar is a British classic. Yeah, but it didn't go with our malt vinegar because there's too much robust sweetness and other flavors going on. So it, it just didn't work. Um, but I just assumed it would. And <laughs> he tasted it and he said, "No, it doesn't work with crab." And I tasted it. And I said, "Well, yeah, absolutely right." <laughs> I felt sort of a bit embarrassed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he uh, tasted um, out of a small cup the the neat vinegar. And he turned around to me and said, "This is this is an amazing, amazing product. This um, it's very rare that something this good comes along in my experience." And I just thought he was saying that just because you know the cameras are rolling. <laughs> yeah, um, and I wasn't despondent about the whole thing. I just didn't think anything massive would come of it. Mm. I was it was slightly doubtful whether they did genuinely enjoy the product. Um, I should have more confidence because I know it's good. But yeah, yeah, it was. Um, it was further down the line before uh, they released the the Great British Adventure Programme that we were on James Martin's Saturday Morning Kitchen mm. and our vinegar featured. I was just on the way back to uh, Nottingham on a family holiday with my wife and child and uh, just noticed my, my phone was, there was a lot of activity. It was just pinging off every, every two seconds and uh, we stopped to get some fuel at a garage. And there was, there was some uh, Geordie woman that <laughs> said, uh, can, I, can I order some of your vinegar? And I said, what's going on? He said, well, you... Someone who called you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. I, I had no idea what was going on. And um, she, she said, oh, you've just been on James Martin's Saturday morning show. I think you should probably watch it. <laughs> 
Um, and then we got a load of amazing emails from people and orders and stuff, and it was just going crazy. Mm. Um, and I didn't actually get to watch it for another five days afterwards because we were trying to enjoy our holiday. <laughs> and uh, and then saw it, and yeah, the, there's no there's no better recommendation I can think for for a product because he was so so into it and uh, and said that it was surreal. And that coming from James Martin with the, the reach that he's got, mm. he's <laughs> he's done us a huge, huge favour. Yeah, I can imagine. That's really brilliant. Um, so, yeah, so lovely to get what, what praise from, from such a kind of well-known chef. It's your malt vinegar that he was sort of using, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the, the bear malt. So that's our kind of flagship flavour. That's the first um, vinegar that I came up with. Yeah. And that's, that's matured in bourbon casks as well. Okay. So it's got a kind of really dark, sort of sweet malty flavor to it mm, delicious um, and it's using the bear which is an ancient orcadian grain right so that's um you know you're a chef so you clearly use your vinegars a lot in cooking what would you recommend that kind of dark robust malt is good for for, for cooking with um it's, it's good with things like um beef and uh kind of braised dishes um robust fish like scallops mm. um just doing a lot of deglazing in the pan um and sort of making an emulsion if you're cooking a piece of um, meaty fish like a turbot or sprill yeah. or monkfish or something like that then you use the uh flavor from the pan as long as it's not completely burnt to smithereens um <laughs> uh, and deglaze with a vinegar yeah um maybe a little bit of stock just to loosen it up a bit and then uh, kind of emulsify with um, with butter and then you've got a instant sauce mm. and it, it's good for for home cooks um, and it works well with fruit surprisingly okay uh, like strawberries because it's um, almost sort of balsamic in characteristics right yeah and that's a quite classic pairing balsamic and strawberries yeah and it's been uh, the, the highland park stuff that's been used in a cocktail it's from a, a guy in New York. He made a kind of shandy with it. Okay. So instead of lemonade um, and and beer together, it's got a, a dark porter, uh, an amount of um, the vinegar to sharpen it up to give it that sort of um, sort of lemony taste. I mean, lemonade's mostly citric acid, so it sounds unusual to put it into a cocktail or, or soft drink but a lot of soft drinks they use citric acid which is not too far removed from vinegar really mm-hmm. so it kind of it kind of makes sense in my brain um but then he uses a, a smoked honey and whiskey in it as well just, just served over ice that sounds really good and that's that's from a, a restaurant in um in new york called Betoni. I think it's closed now, but it used to be a, a Michelin-style restaurant. Um, he's one of the best uh, mixologists in, in New York. Wow. It's called Eamon Rocky. And then uh, there's uh, a guy called Ryan Chetiwandora. Very good pronunciation. Um, I just tend to go with Mr. Lion. <laughs> Mr. Lion. Uh, I, I, I don't think I got it quite right. But I, I, <laughs> I sounded pretty good to me. <laughs> okay, we'll, <laughs> we'll go with that. Um, he uses our stuff as well. He's really enthusiastic about it. Um, and uh, it's just um, an acid to replace uh, imported citrus fruits. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's just different. Um, but it, it does work, genuinely. It's not... Um, mm. A gimmick, in, in in my opinion, but I would say that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, I think it's nice to use. You've got this acid, you've got this vinegar, 
produced in Britain instead of importing citrus fruit. It's really nice to use that mm-hmm. um, in replace of lemon juice or what? Yeah, whatever you you were going to traditionally use. Yeah, I mean, you don't want something really uh, raw and sort of harsh with no other kind of flavour apart from acidity. It needs to mm-hmm. needs to add something to it. Yeah, and your vinegars are very sort of rounded and, you know, more mellowed, aren't they? Because they're matured for, for much longer than something you would typically buy off a supermarket shelf. Yeah, precisely, yeah. And um, we're kind of uh, uh, brewing the alcohol with a certain residual sugar. Um, so it's it's alcohol that's tailor-made to uh, ferment into vinegar mm-hmm. rather than taking a, a wine that's quite dry and uh, very acidic. Yeah. You're going to end up with something that's going to be completely acidic and and nothing else. So, yeah, it's is making alcohol too um, specifically to ferment to, to vinegar. Sounds very scientific <laughs> and um, complicated, but to you, it's probably second nature now. Well, yeah, no, it's it's quite straightforward when you when you grasp the whole science behind it and what you're left with. Um, apart from acids when mm. the second ferment hits and you can get layers of flavor by stopping the fermentation from alcohol at a certain level so you've got a certain amount of sugar left and then rounding it off in wooden casks as well just yeah. to develop layers of flavors yeah okay and um, your range is very interesting flavors already but I know you're constantly experimenting with other kind of foraged orkney ingredients is there anything you're working on at the moment yeah, there is actually. Um, there's a, a flowering currant bush uh, just at the back of my house, and um, I, I just wanted to try vinegar from the actual flowers because mm. it's um, it's really floral. You still get that um, sort of black currant flavour to it. Currently, looks like ribena at the moment. <laughs> so it's black a black currant bush. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, just okay. specifically using the blossoms from it. Yeah, exactly. Um, because people use uh, elderflower vinegar, for example. Yeah. Um, and that that's been done, um, and elderflower is not so prominent up here. Um, there is an amount of it, but a bit flowering currants just just everywhere at the moment. So, but it, I, I picked some with my son the other day, and it was <laughs> it was a laborious task, and he, he made me sniff every blossom before I put it in the in the bucket as well. So. That's probably why it took <laughs> so long. So he was the quality. He was quality control, was he? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How old is he? Three. He's three. <laughs> I love it. He's going to be a master of vinegar. He is. Yeah. Um, he loves. <laughs> he loves foraging. Um, we've been picking rhubarb lately, and, mm. and we did another flavour with uh, primrose as well. Oh, okay. So they're nice sort of yellow flowers, and I was going to do a sort of honey primrose. So it's a mead with uh, primrose and, and turn that into to a wine and then just mm. keep adding the, the blossoms into it. And I don't, I don't know how it's going to taste, but I noticed another company made a primrose wine and said it's absolutely outstanding. But um, mm. it's, it's, I think you'll need a team of foragers to pull that one off, but it's good to experiment and try things out. Yeah, for sure. And. Uh, I wanted to do a, um, a red dulse flavour. This has been in my mind for, for quite a while and I've done a trial of it and it works. But red dulse would be smoked, so it kind of tastes like smoked bacon. Oh, really? And it's a seaweed? Yeah, um, which is incredible. And um, obviously it'd be a, a vegan vinegar as well. Um, <laughs> not not going to infuse with smoked bacon or anything wacky like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that that's... Um, 
that's a really interesting flavour too. Okay, so hopefully that one might be available at some point in the future. Yeah, I've just got my, my work cut out at the moment because it's it's just me that produces right now. Right. But we're just on the cusp of um, employing somebody else um, uh, to, to do the brewing with me. And uh, a lot of it is kind of uh, bottling, packaging and logistics too. But I'd like to get into a place where I can be more creative. Mm. But, you know, that that's just going to happen as as we grow. Yeah. And and look at other products as well, and not just vinegar. Um, but Orkney's got plenty to offer uh, with ingredients. I'm very lucky to, to to be here and live here. Um, yeah. Especially good at the moment, as it's beautiful sunshine and quite warm. So it's pretty unusual. <laughs> yeah, lovely. <laughs> yeah, because you're literally a one man band. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm obviously the um, master three year old as well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's only a certain amount, amount you can produce and I know your vinegars just sell out don't they and then yeah. there's literally no more to come until the next batch is sort of matured um, yeah so yeah that's that's a, that's a lo- lovely place to be in but I'm sure yeah you want to expand if you can yeah we don't want to frustrate our customers because uh, well, we have already and um, it's yeah it's a good problem to have but they're gonna lose patience eventually so mm. um, we're going through scaling up right now um at the moment i can produce 200 liters of finished vinegar every couple of weeks and we need to be doing probably five times that so wow and apart from james martin are there any other um chefs that that our listeners might know um who are using your vinegar who are big fans um there's there's a guy called uh, gareth ward um, oh yeah in wales yeah and he's he's a friend of mine I used to work for him um and uh I think he'll agree that I'm a better vinegar producer than I was a chef. <laughs> <laughs> I, Charming. I didn't, I didn't have the right temperament for it. I don't think I'm right. a, a lot more relaxed and in a happy, safe place now. Yeah. Now I'm out of the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> they are crazy places. But he, he's using it. A chef called Brad Carter. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's um, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of good chefs that have had samples and used it and liked it. Yeah, amazing. So lastly, I just want to ask you what your favourite ingredient is right now. Um, as every episode, I'm creating a recipe based on what my guest chooses. Yeah, well, you've just jogged my memory of another flavour because um, Orkney is uh, really good for gooseberries as well. Um, and I want to do a sort of ice filtrated wine. So basically, you freeze the, the gooseberries down. And then in the thawing process, the, the gooseberry loses a bit of um, the uh, hydration. So it's almost like not a raisin, but more concentrated um, sugar in the juice. Um, so that kind of uh, negates their use for adding more sugar into it. So it's a more concentrated gooseberry flavour. And uh, gooseberry flavour in, in things like wine is um, really sort of advantageous and nice and fresh and good with things like uh, mackerel. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be it's going to have to be gooseberry. Brilliant. Okay. I look forward to um, crafting a gooseberry recipe. They're, I think they're underused. Mm-hmm, definitely. And like, they really pack a punch. So brilliant. Thanks for that. Yeah, that's fine. Oh, thank you so much for coming on, Sam. Really lovely to speak to you. Yeah, no worries at all. I really like the sound of that gooseberry vinegar that Sam is trying to make, but today I thought I'd give you a dessert. It's a tart with some elderflower whipped cream on the side, nice and simple, and serves eight. 
First of all, preheat the oven to 180 degrees, then line a 10-inch tart tin with a thin sheet of shortcrust pastry, which you can buy from a shop or of course make yourself. Whilst the oven is getting to temperature, pop the pastry case in the fridge for 10 minutes to chill. Meanwhile, place three egg yolks, one teaspoon of corn flour, the zest of a small lemon, the seeds of half a vanilla pod and 70 grams of caster sugar into a bowl and beat with an electric whisk for a couple of minutes until it's a paler color and fluffy. Then remove the whisk and stir in 300 mils of double cream by hand. Then pop your pastry into the oven with some baking beans inside and blind bake for 10 to 15 minutes until it's a light golden color. Then remove the beans and cook for a further five minutes and remove and allow to cool slightly. Turn down the oven temperature to 150 degrees, then top and tail 400 grams of gooseberries and pop them into your cooled tart case, spreading them out evenly, then pouring over the cream mixture and baking for 40 minutes. Allow to cool to room temperature before serving or you can serve it chilled. I like a dollop of elderflower cream on the side where I just whip up double cream and fold in elderflower cordial. You can visit doorstepkitchen.com slash recipes slash gooseberries for the recipe. I've also linked the page in the notes under this episode. Now we're moving on to speak to our expert forager, Imogen Davis from London Restaurant Native. She joins us every week. Hello foragers. Usually people don't see July as a very bountiful time of year for foraging as the blossoms will have gone over and we'll be waiting for those juicy fruits to ripen. But there are still plenty of exciting little morsels to get out and forage for. This week we've been out foraging for common hogweed. The young shoots, the leaf stems, root and fruit are all edible. And in fact, the leaves contain higher levels of protein than curly kale. But my favourite part of the plant, which now are in abundance, are the dainty little seeds, which look very unassuming, but really are a flavour explosion. Common hogweed is a member of the carrot family, of which there are over 1,500 members worldwide. And although this sounds like a safe, recognisable identity group, as we can all identify a carrot, it actually does contain the potentially deadly hemlock, which we spoke about before, and also giant hogweed, which would never be touched and certainly never eaten. So, on to the identification, which is very important. You take your time and cross-reference, and as you do this, you'll be enjoying hogweed in your cooking for years to come. The stems of the common hogweed are green to dark reddy purple coloured and are covered in small really visible hairs which lead to the leaves. The young leaves start curled before unveiling the dark green lobed matte leaves which are also covered in tiny hairs. They're beautiful tiny white flowers which blossom together in an umbel or umbrella shape are just so beautiful. After the flowers were then introduced to the seeds, these flat, light green discs that grow in clusters on the umbels. The seeds are still edible when mature and brown, so once you have a look at some of these images of the leaves, the flowers and the stems online and in books, it's always a good idea to look at the similar species, and for this, that is definitely advisable. So giant hogweed has a shinier leaves, more hair in a ring around the stem where the leaf joins and there's more flower stems and generally, as you can imagine, is a lot bigger. Giant hogweed gets four to five metres tall, whereas common hogweed is normally around two metres or less. But it is worth remembering that cross-referencing and not just taking one identification marker as guidance is absolutely essential. 
As we're now at the time of year when we can harvest the seeds, they are delicious pickled or you can leave them to dry simply on the plant and return to harvest them when they've turned a light brown colour and you can add them to your forage spice cabinet which I'm sure is coming along really well. At Native, our hogseed vadavan carrot dish is a firm favourite and Ivan actually based one of his dishes for Great British Menu this year on it. If you've never seen glow-in-the-dark carrots, I suggest you check out this year's GBM. As always, just remember to be sensible and cross reference and even if you don't harvest it straight away the knowledge will stay with you forever happy foraging thanks imogen i've got some hogweed seeds drying at the moment and think they resemble somewhere between orange zest and cardamom so they're a great addition to the larder that's all for this episode of the doorstep kitchen thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed the show please do rate review and subscribe as it makes all the difference Next week, I speak to Will Devlin, chef owner of The Small Holding in Kent, a gorgeous farm and highly praised restaurant with rooms as well. On the farm in the Garden of England, Will and the team are growing strawberries, which are at their best right now. So I'll be sharing a strawberry recipe with you and Imogen will be back with Meadowsweet, the perfect pal for strawberries. See you next time.